primary care knowledge boost, long COVID and update. Hello everyone and welcome back to Primary Care Knowledge Boost. Today we are very happy to welcome back Prof Carolyn Chu Graham um, to speak to us about long COVID. Um, she was um, with us back in August 2021, which we were very surprised to learn when we went back and looked at the date of that, um, where we um, initially talked about long COVID. Um, but she's come back to tell us where we're up to now, a couple of years down the line. Yeah, she's passionate about long COVID. She does a lot of research that involves a lot of patients. So um, it's really great to get her experience and try and collate all the experiences of the patients that she's seeing as well. Um, so we go through what what is long COVID and what we know about it, the very varied symptoms, um, and then how many people have it. Um, we talk about vaccinations and investigations. Yeah, and then we speak about um, kind of the role of um, general practice and where that sits um, alongside um, long COVID um, specialist clinics. And she gives us um, some information about children and young people um, and their experiences with long COVID, um, as well as where the research is going and what more research needs to be done. Um, and then she finishes off with some great resources that can be used for um, both patients and healthcare professionals. Yeah, it's a great episode. We hope you enjoy. And we'll be back at the end to share our learning points. So I'm Carolyn Chu Graham. I'm a GP in central Manchester and I'm a professor of general practice research at Keele University. Um, I have particular interest in people who've got persistent physical symptoms, mental health problems and complex multimorbidity. So that's where my research interests occur. Gosh, it's not afraid of a, a challenge, essentially, <laughs> which leads us nicely on to talking about long COVID. Um, so first of all, can you explain what long COVID is? Yeah. OK, so as everybody knows, COVID-19 is an infectious disease caused by a virus, which is known as SARS-CoV-2. And COVID-19 was declared a pandemic in March 2020. And it was said at that time that people who were infected with COVID-19 experienced either mild to moderate symptoms or no symptoms or could die from it. Mm. But then in spring-summer 2020, reports began to emerge, particularly in the media, about people who were experiencing much longer lasting symptoms after them having a very acute infection of COVID-19, even a very mild infection. And this condition has come to be called long COVID. In 2020 and then also in 2021, much of what was known about long COVID really came from people with the condition, living with the symptoms. They shared their experiences online and in the media and obviously in, in primary care where I'm situated. But they realised by sharing their experiences that they were not the only ones to have persistent symptoms. So in the summer of 2020, I conducted some research. I got ethics approval from Keele University and interviewed 30 people who I recruited through social media and they described their experiences since they'd had the acute COVID-19 infection. And what was key from all the narratives were people told me they were struggling to have their symptoms taken seriously by healthcare professionals. Mm. Now, I'm currently involved in some research with racially minoritised people with long COVID, some of whom still describe encounters with healthcare professionals in which they feel they've been disbelieved, that they've been gaslighted. And that's three years down the line. 
By December 2022, the Office of National Statistics estimated that about 2.2 million people in the UK still have symptoms that are lasting more than four weeks. And about 1.2 million people have got symptoms that have lasted more than a year. That's a lot of people. Well, our next, our next question was why, why, why the name long COVID, but that sort of <laughs> explains it. Well, yeah, I think it's important because the nice guidance that came out in December 2020 talked about acute COVID-19 infection, that was signs and symptoms for up to four weeks, and then ongoing symptomatic COVID-19, so that was symptoms between four and 12 weeks, and then post-COVID-19 syndrome. So these are people who are still experiencing symptoms after 12 weeks. People with long COVID don't really like the term post-COVID because Actually, they're not post, they've still got symptoms. So the patient preferred term is definitely long COVID. That's interesting. I can understand, I can understand that. You're right, if you're living with it, you're not going to feel like you're post it, will you? No, no, no it's a quite a dismissive term, I think, that people yeah. feel. And what sort of symptoms do people tend to have who are experiencing long COVID? So the symptoms are really variable. And I think this is what's confused and, and caused problems for people presenting in primary care. So the symptoms vary within individuals, but they also vary between individuals. The commonest symptoms are extreme tiredness, fatigue, particularly post-exertional fatigue. People describe brain fog, difficulty concentrating, memory loss. They describe difficulty breathing, and breathlessness, persistent coughing, chest pain, weak voice, palpitations, dizziness, difficulty controlling their body temperature, loss of taste of smell, problems with vision, poor sleep, headaches, aching joints, gastrointestinal symptoms such as diarrhea, and numbness, pins and needles, and rashes. So a great variety of different uh, symptoms. And I guess that because of that variability of symptoms, it leads to difficulties in diagnosis. Yeah. And I was just going to say, because it's so multi-systemic there, where the symptoms can come from, is um, is there normally a time frame when people would present? Do they tend to have COVID and then have ongoing symptoms or can there be a break and then they can develop some symptoms? Just thinking for diagnosis. Yeah. So typically people describe not really recovering from the acute infection, but that you know, a group of symptoms has persisted, whether it's fatigue or brain fog or shortness of breath. Um, so the NICE guidance says that after four weeks, that's ongoing symptomatic COVID. Um, but after 12 weeks, that's definitely the post-COVID-19 syndrome. And we can talk about what investigations need to be done. The difficulty is, of course, there's no diagnostic test. So it's not like being able to check somebody's blood pressure, it's high, or checking an HbA1c, they've got diabetes. So the history is really important to find out when the symptoms started, are they related to a COVID-19 infection? And obviously now we can do a lateral flow test and then trying to put together that picture to, to see whether this could be long COVID. You mentioned that about um, 1.2 million people have still got symptoms after a year, but do we know... Yeah. All, all in all, how many people in the UK roughly have long COVID? It, it's well, um, it's two point two. It's two million now. The Office of National Statistics. Oh, okay. So in December they said it was two point two, but the most recent say it's two million. So obviously some people have okay. recovered. 
Um, but the 1.2 million is important because these are people who've had symptoms for more than a year. They're often not working. They, you know, they've got caring responsibilities. So their whole life is impacted. So I think the, the point is it's not, even if it lasts 12 weeks, that's serious enough, isn't it? But if it lasts more than a year, people will come out of work. People will make, be made redundant or have to retire through health reasons. So it's a really in, impactful condition. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, do we know why some people get it and some people don't? What, what's the cause of long COVID? Uh, we don't. <laughs> so um, there's lots of theories about why it might be caused. So um, there's a whole list of things. An, an inflammatory response. Could it be autoimmune? We do know that more women are affected than men and therefore an autoimmune condition is, is perhaps likely. There's evidence that there's vasculitis, so people get chillblains, COVID toes. So is it the blood vessels that are affected? Is it microclotting? And there's certainly been work done in Germany that suggests that the clotting processes are deranged and there's, there's treatment offered in Germany with anticoagulants. There's also evidence of persistent virus, particularly in the stomach. There's evidence that um, endothelial lining is damaged. There's evidence in the lungs that there's fibrosis and scarring. And there's thought to be probably a genetic disposition because we do know that some families, a parent and a child, are affected. That's really interesting. Um, where does vaccination fit in? I definitely know anecdotally some patients who've suffered with long covid are very reluctant to to have had anything to do with the vaccines because they're suffering. Um, where are we up to with that? Yeah, so some people, as you say, who have long COVID, had their first vaccine, had a reaction, had a, an exacerbation of the symptoms and were then, I think, quite understandably reluctant to have further vaccines. Other people yeah. with long COVID had a vaccine and described an improvement in their symptoms, but then a relapse. There is evidence that some people have developed long COVID or at least had an exacerbation of long COVID. Perhaps they didn't have marked symptoms before following a vaccination. I've certainly got a, a patient whose symptoms were made much worse. But if, if you don't have long COVID and you have the triple vaccine, then you have a much reduced risk of developing long COVID. So vaccination does pr protect against developing long COVID. Okay. And again, just anecdotally from um, my experience, it seemed to be that a lot of people that um, were infected in the first wave with the first variant seemed to be more likely to um, develop long COVID. Is that actually accurate? Um, yes, but but also people from have been developing it from Omicron. And it's difficult now because the picture is so confused because people are having second and third um, episodes of COVID with different variants and some people are partially vaccinated, some people are fully vaccinated. So whilst vaccination reduces the risk of you getting long COVID, it doesn't completely get rid of that risk. That's grand. Yeah, it is a very, very muddied picture now, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about how on earth you research this. Um, so you mentioned uh, earlier about talking about how we should investigate people um, with potential long COVID. So um, if someone does come into to primary care um, and we're suspecting it, what, what, what should we be doing? Yeah, so I think most importantly, people need to have their symptoms taken seriously. So when 
somebody says they had COVID and they've now got these odd symptoms, it's important to recognise and listen and empathise. I think most practitioners now are aware of long COVID as a possibility and do believe in it, um, despite the fact my most recent research where patients, people with, with long COVID described actually being disbelieved. So I think, first of all, that the clinician needs to take the person's symptoms seriously. It's very important not to dismiss the symptoms of an as anxiety or depression. And we've got the Your COVID Recovery website, which we can refer people to, and that has lots of really good information for patients. I think it's important that patients are seen face-to-face -face and examined. We cannot do a proper assessment over the telephone. Mm -hmm. So people need to be able to talk about all their symptoms. GPs need to find out what sort of therapies people are having. Often they're going for complementary therapies. And it's important to find out what patients expect from the consultation. So the examination needs to include pulse and blood pressure, particularly checking for postural changes. We can talk about postural orthostatic tachycardia shortly. And it is important to assess people's mental state. So you can do a PHQ-2 or a GAD-2 to case find for depression and anxiety symptoms. Because whilst they're not the cause of long COVID, anybody who's affected by these symptoms will quite understandably develop anxiety or depression, and that can be treated separately. And it's really important that we as GPs code the condition and, and provide a fit note that reflects their, their symptoms. And then investigations. It's really important to do basic blood tests, so full blood count, test for inflammatory mar markers such as CRP, use and ease, thyroid function, hematinics. And then if somebody has gastrointestinal symptoms, it's sensible to do celiac screen, faecal calprotectin, and possibly a fit test if somebody's of an age where bowel cancer might be a possibility. If someone has got respiratory symptoms, you might consider spirometry and a chest x-ray. You might think if someone's got chest pain, do they need a chest x-ray? Um, and it's also important to have a look at your local long COVID clinic because they've got specific requirements about what investigations have to be done before referral. And the referral will be sent back if all those investigations aren't done. It's really good to know. And it's nice that you've mentioned all the different systems, really including the mental health side of things. You've mentioned a bit about the morbidity of having long COVID for some people. What, what are the impacts of having long COVID in general? Well, again, they're varied because it depends on the nature of the symptoms and the severity and the context in which people are living. You know, do they have caring responsibilities? Were they working full time? Were they working in a health or social care or education establishment before they got COVID? Because they can be quite the context of going back to work if they feel that they caught COVID from where their workplace is, is tricky. It's worth looking at Health Talk, which is a, I don't know if people have heard of healthtalk.org. They've developed a module with interviews with 63 people with long COVID. And so you can look at people talking. So they've got some talking heads. You can read some of the extracts of the interviews. And people talk about the impact of long COVID on all aspects of their life. So their sense of well-being, their sense of identity, home and family life, relationships, work and finance. And I think the difficulty for people living with long COVID is, and for, and for clinicians, that the time course is very variable. So it isn't possible to predict who's going to recover, and put recovery in inverted commas, and how long that recovery is going to take. 
that um, leads us on then to talk about treatment, whether or not there is anything effective that, um, that works for long COVID. So there are problems that can be treated. So there's something called POTS, postural tachycardia syndrome. And this is an autonomic nervous system abnormality. It's sometimes called dysautonomia. And people present with complaining of palpitations, a fast heart rate, and dizziness and lightheadedness on standing. And people have to be, as I've said, have to be seen face to face. And you need to assess their pulse and blood pressure when they're sitting, and then their pulse and blood pressure when they're standing. And in POTS, there's a 30 beats or more increase in their heart rate within 10 minutes of standing. They don't get an associated blood pressure drop. They feel dizzy and their symptoms are relieved by lying down. So we as GPs can diagnose POTS and we can direct people to the POTS self-help website and we can offer advice. And basic advice is things like avoiding triggers. So often heavy meals or poor fluid intake. We need to advise about possibly adding extra salt, which is counterintuitive. Compression stockings. So if you look on all the COVID support, long COVID support groups, um, people compare the sorts of pressure stockings that have hurt, helped them. There are medications that are suggested, but usually by specialists. So beta blockers, vabradine, midradrine, and fludrocortisone. And I have seen these prescribed by specialists and we've taken over the prescribing. But I have to stress that these are out of indication and the evidence is limited. So it probably isn't something that we as GPs would start. The other thing that we should be looking for is mast cell activation syndrome. So this can present where people get urticarious and rashes, wheeze, palpitation, breathlessness, abdominal cramps, heartburn, dyspepsia, sleep disturbance, sometimes stridor. So again, a multitude of symptoms and you could think, is this MCAS? We think there's good evidence that SARS-CoV-2 does cause MCAS because it, in the acute phase, it causes histamine release through mast cells. So there's logic in thinking long COVID may have this underlying etiology. It sounds a bit like, um, is it carcinoid type symptoms as well, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Oh, tricky. Yeah. So, so again, tricky, again, you know, a range of symptoms that people can present. And how can it be managed? Well, high dose um, H1 blockade. But unfortunately, the drugs are often off label. So we're prescribing fexofenadine at high doses. And, and I think we, many in general practice have started to do that. Certainly recommended by the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. We sort of think we're okay doing that. Um, H2 blockade, so that's something like famotidine, 20 milligrams BD. Again, that is a dose that's, that's off label. It's worth trying Montelukast or oral sodium chromoglycate. And again, should we as GPs be starting this? Well, not if we don't feel confident. Mm-hmm. We should try and get specialist care involvement. Um, but, you know, as we're aware, there are waiting lists for either long COVID clinics or for immunology. There is, a, a, again, a, a patient support group, the Mass Cell Action Support Group. And so I always direct people to have a look at that. I think the other thing is, is in, encouraging people to manage their symptoms. I think, I think we have to admit that we're uncertain. We don't know what causes it. We don't know how long it's going to last. Uh, that there aren't, at the moment, effective treatments. But there are things that the person can do 
So the importance of rest. I think when the Your COVID Recovery website came out right at the beginning, it talked about graded activity. People with long COVID really felt that was unhelpful. And that's been replaced by activity management. So people with long COVID talk about pacing. They feel that they have limited energy, that they, they, they visualize their energy as a battery, and they've only got so much they can use, and they have to rest, have restful periods, both rest from a psychological point of view, physical point of view, um, so and, and emotional point of view. So they rest, replenish their batteries, and, and then can do a bit more. So, so I think we shouldn't be encouraging graded activity. We should be letting the patient regulate their, their activity and what they feel they can do. Some patients do describe being able to build up their activity gradually. And if they do, then we can encourage them to do that. And other patients feel that breathing exercises have been helpful. Um, certainly there was some evidence that being in a choir and regulating your breathing can be helpful. And meditation and mindfulness may be helpful for some people. Again, not, no evidence, but logically it might be helpful. Many people are going to complementary and alternative therapies. And it's really important as a GP to find out what people are trying. Mm-hmm. Lots of people get support from in-person and online support groups. So Greater Manchester has a fantastic support group. And then there's a national support group called Long COVID Support. And this provides a lot of resources for people, helping them manage their symptoms, making them feel that they're not alone, giving advice about maybe going back to work. Sometimes people can be offered physiotherapy if they've been lucky enough to access a long COVID clinic. And that's important uh, when it comes to pacing, managing activity, but also support for breathing problems. Speech therapy is thought to be important if a person has problems with their voice. Occupational therapy might have something to offer if we could access it. And certainly people who are out of work need support from occupational health to support their return to work. And then as we've mentioned, people may also get comorbid anxiety and depression and therefore referral to NHS talking treatments is really important. I think the positive thing is that there is research going on around the world to find more effective treatments for long covid I'd say that's fair. Um, you've covered more than I would have expected actually being available, which is um, really good. Is there anything else that general practice can be doing to help manage and support people with long COVID before we talk about kind of long COVID specialist clinics? So I think the important thing is that people want to ha- feel they have a GP or a clinician in primary care who they can trust, who believes them, who will perhaps keep abreast of the latest developments around long COVID or for very activated patients that they feel they can send information to and say, you know, I've seen this trial gone on in Germany or Australia, what do you think of it? My friend's been prescribed such and such, what do you think? And they can have an adult conversation, you know, looking at, well, actually there's no evidence for that, or, well, that seems promising, but I can't prescribe it. And having that honest conversation about what the limitations are currently. Grand. And then where do the specialist clinics come into everything? Okay, so it was very exciting in November 2020 when the Department of Health announced an investment of 10 million to fund 69 clinics across England. Scotland are still waiting. Um, these clinics were intended to be multidisciplinary, so allied health professionals as well as doctors, mental health practitioners, occupational health, but they vary across 
each location. So some are truly multidisciplinary, others are one respiratory physician or a GP with special interest. We also know that the referral pathways vary between localities. So that's why when, as a GP, you're working somebody up to, to think about referring to a long COVID clinic, have a look what they require, which may be more than nice suggest. And we also know that waiting times are growing. So people are living with long COVID and waiting months to be seen in um, a long COVID clinic. So again, the importance of having a GP there who believes them, who they trust, who they can talk to, even if the GP can't offer any new treatments. Yeah, definitely long months from in, in my locality, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. Moving on to uh, children and younger people, um, I know we mentioned this in our initial conversation. Where are we up to with that? Do they do they get long COVID? Is it as long? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't answer that. Is it as long? Um, yes, they do get long COVID. Again, when COVID was first um, announced as a pandemic, it was kids don't get infections or they get very mild infections. They may be asymptomatic. And then again, reports later in 2020 became... Uh, came to the fore, particularly in the media, that, that children and young people are also getting particularly fatigue and headaches. And there's been a number of research studies around children, and the CLOCK study suggested that one in seven children who tested positive for COVID have symptoms lasting 15 weeks or more. Mm. So one in seven is quite a yeah. lot. Now, you have to take that um, with a, quite a large pinch of salt because that was a self-report study and so people who perhaps had tested negative for COVID wouldn't fill in their questionnaires but I think the, the point is yes children and young people do get long COVID they can be as severely affected as adults and, and their families need a lot of support um, often these children are out of school um, and then develop an anxiety They've had periods of lockdown, they've had homeschooling, and they've got long COVID on top. And, and I just want to sort of mention an article that I wrote with some parent, two parents of children with long COVID, which was published in The Conversation. And that included a number of top tips for parents, um, because I think parents need the support as well as the children needing treatment and management. Yeah, that's that's really good, definitely. So that's we'll uh, we'll link to that in the episode description. That sounds like an excellent resource. Um, so you've mentioned a few bits of research, but generally, what research are you aware of that's sort of helping take the evidence base forwards in terms of what we know about long COVID? Yeah, so there are a number of important research questions that need to be answered, particularly on finding effective treatments. And I think what's really essential at the moment is, is defining the place of anticoagulants in the treatment of people with long COVID, because we are, in my practice, seeing patients who are going to Germany, being treated with anticoagulants, coming back with them, and then we can't prescribe soft licence. So we really need to, to try and pin down, is there a place for anticoagulants? And I know there's some work going on in the UK. We also need to know why some people get long COVID and others don't. We need to try and establish what causes long COVID, which will help us then think about how best to treat people. And we need to know whether people will ever recover. And there's increasing talk on the media that there's such an overlap with chronic fatigue syndrome or myalgic encephalomyelitis. And some people with long COVID are now saying, actually, I think I've got ME. Um, and so... 
I think the support groups are, are often talking to each other about their varied experiences. Yeah. There's a number of specific studies that I want to mention that are funded by the National Institute for Health and Care Research. So I'm involved in a study called High Cove, and we're exploring the experiences of people from racially minoritised groups living with long COVID. We know that people from some ethnic groups suffered in terms of acute COVID, suffered increased morbidity and mortality. Um, but we don't know whether people from those groups also have long COVID. So we're doing some qualitative work, which we hope will raise awareness amongst these patient groups and again, encouraging them to seek help from primary care. There's also um, a study called Stimulate ICP, and that's um, a study where they're testing existing drugs to see whether um, they have any impact on long COVID. They're also using MRI scans in the participants to help look for organ damage. The locomotion study, again, is trying to identify what the best uh, treatment is and, and what sort of home monitoring methods people could use to manage their own condition. And then there's other work um, where they're using social enterprise and social prescribing to, again, think about long COVID in, in underrepresented groups and, again, focusing on self-management. And so I think a lot of the research is around sort of accepting that long COVID is a complex disorder, it's multi-system, there's unlikely to be one single cause and therefore there's not going to be one single treatment. So self-management, being an, an activated patient, being able to manage individual symptoms with support is really important. That was a nice comprehensive review. Thank you. And we'll um, link to bits and pieces of that um, if you can give us the, the information. Um, just on that, if we've got any patients that are interested in um, joining any studies or being involved, is there um, a best place for them to go to be able to find um, that information? Well, we're quite lucky in Greater Manchester because Professor Nawal Barclay has set up a long COVID cohort and he is trying to advertise, get people on his cohort and then inform them of the latest research that's going on and getting people to enrol. Anybody can look on the NIHR, that's the National Institute for Health and Care Research website, that tells you about all the um, studies that are going on. It's also important to look on the Your COVID Recovery website because that also has information about studies that people might want to enrol in. Other resources that are not about research but are about helping people self-management, I've mentioned the Your COVID Recovery website. There's also an NHS website which again gives the same sort of information. And then Health Talk, which I've mentioned already, I think is useful for patients but also for clinicians to just understand the experiences of suffering with long COVID. And then there's the long COVID support groups and long COVID kids, which is a, a, another support group, which has got lots of resources for people, um, at, you know, around living with a condition, self-management strategies, complementary therapies, um, but also particularly for families, for the long COVID kids of, of what support's available for families and support to get back to work. Great. And what about um, for healthcare professionals? Are there any other good resources for them? Yeah, so obviously the, the RCGP NICE sign guidance, although I think that probably does need a bit of an update. The RCGP has got an online module for long COVID. 
Again, I think that needs a bit of an update and I have been pressing for that. I think these things, because the evidence is emerging and people's experiences are changing, I think we need to learn a little bit more about people's experiences and build those into the online learning. Yeah, that's fantastic that um, things are moving on. I was, I was really interested with the orthostatic tachycardia management um, and options there. Um, there was a good BMJ article on it as well, actually. That was really good. <laughs> there was, yeah. I like those infographics. Yeah, they're really they're helpful. Handy, yeah. Was it waist, waist high compression stockings? <laughs> yeah. So it seems, seems tricky. Um, <laughs> Pretty uncomfortable and difficult to get on, actually, if you're yeah. feeling really fatigued. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so, um, for patients who've got symptoms from the bowel side, the GI symptom side, um, would you expect the cow protection to be negative? So there's no inflammation that we're catching. Um, would you also, how do you, any, any advances on management there or? Yeah. So H2 blockade, so famitidine, um, and I feel quite comfortable prescribing that. I think it's probably off license in the doses that we're prescribing. Mm. Patients certainly feel that it's helpful. For say, like if they were getting diarrhea, yeah, or nausea or indigestion, people getting are getting awful reflux, and that yes. does seem to help. And I think this is the the thing about the the support groups. People share their experiences, and so they bring in to the GP. You know, well, I've seen on long COVID support that we should I should be on fermitidine, and it's really important as a GP to be able to listen to that and hear and, and to perhaps do some research, bring people back. Um, make sure as a practice there's somebody in the practice who feels more comfortable perhaps than others at, at prescribing off license and taking that responsibility. I don't know if you've ever come across this but um, definitely speaking to colleagues they've had people come back with um, private consultations from different countries recommending very off license quite bizarre medications that we just are not able to prescribe. Yeah and we just say no. Um, so we, we've particularly seen it with anticoagulants when people have been to Germany and we've said, no, I'm afraid we can't. It's off license. We haven't, you know, we haven't got a shared care protocol. We've not got a letter from them. Um, we're not taking the responsibility. And some people have said, that's fine. Other people have said, well, I'll go to a long COVID clinic. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you're already in the, on the waiting list. Other people have managed to find cardiology appointments and cardiologists locally who'll prescribe mm -hmm. but but as gps we really shouldn't be doing that because you know it's non-evidence based and our defense unions wouldn't support that yeah uh, so wrapping up um generally speaking what are the learning points from our chat today what what would you like people to take away from the conversation do you know i think the key point is still the same as two and a half years ago that we really need to believe patients it's very difficult when somebody's got persistent physical symptoms and we've done some tests and, you know, there's nothing that's abnormal and they're still struggling, they're still living with these symptoms. And I think saying to a patient, I believe you, this is something that's called long COVID. Here's the Your COVID Recovery website. Have a look on that. There's a nice guidance about it. We can do some tests. We can exclude um, other conditions. And I'll be your GP and I will speak to you every month. Um, I will refer you to the long COVID clinic. I'll help you with your fit notes. I'll help you with occupational health. So that we are really the patient's advocate. Um, because I think people with long COVID, as I've said, they, they lose their identity, particularly if they're not working. This is a complete change in their life and they need somebody in their corner. And, and I think that's the role of the, the primary care team. 
Yeah, sort of traveling with people as well. Isn't mm. it? That's brilliant. Thank you so much, Carolyn. Yeah, it was lovely to chat to you again and it was fab to get an update of where things are at now. Um, so thank you for coming back and chatting to us. Thanks very much. So Lisa, um, that was a phenomenal chat. Um, what are your learning points from the discussion? I think I was just struck, like she said um, at the end, about how we're still in a position where patients aren't feeling believed for their symptoms. Like she said at the um, at the beginning about um, patients feeling like they're experiencing gaslighting, um, and I, I just I, yeah, I just find it so sad um, that we're still in a place like that three years down the line from COVID. Um, definitely a fair amount of time from knowing about long COVID's existence. So yeah, um, that that I think was my biggest take home. Um, what about you? Yeah, it definitely was a huge take home. It seems strange because I see it, but then I also was thinking, am I not recognizing it? And the symptoms are so varied. Um, and it's it's probably easier if you've got it on your radar again. So I'm so glad we've got the update because I think sometimes it does, it slips down the radar and you might miss an opportunity to really help somebody. Yeah, so I think right. that... That was a good point. But but then again, I wouldn't say that you would dismiss someone's symptoms, though. No. Um, it's You might not think about it, but it's the patients that feel like they're being dismissed is, is pretty terrible, regardless of what the condition well, is. Well, I think that's it in general. I think the whole thing of the way... I think if you've got the continuity, it'd be probably easier. But like she was talking about some of the more marginalised where you know if you're activated then it's fine if you're so the bloods were normal the ecg was normal the chest x-ray is normal you're still knocking on the door to have that yeah. conversation i think a bit like some of the other um more difficult to diagnose conditions where it is that follow-up that you need to be able to go okay we've ruled all of that out it's not heart failure it's not you know your swallowing's okay your speech is okay you know you've not got your spirometry was okay so and it's that conversation afterwards like shall we be looking at these other things and just working out that good history and can we link yeah. it back to a condition because not everybody's doing the lateral flows now or no that's what I was thinking yeah. as well I was like you might not know that you've had COVID yes. so how would you link it back yeah. so yeah it's, it's really interesting yeah it's diff it's difficult and um, I really really was interested in the POTS and the orthostatic tachycardia that yeah. the diagnosis um that that can be done in general practice if we've got the resources it's a 10 minute kind of test to do um and it's one of several different choices but that would be quite useful i'd, I'd be interested in trying to upskill there i think yeah, yeah definitely yeah the fact that there we don't know exactly what causes um the essentialness of long covid but it is interesting that there are a few things like that in the mcas um that are more specific things that can be looked for um yeah. not that we should hang everything on that and patients probably will have other symptoms alongside it but it's just nice to have something that you can investigate for and something that you can potentially treat in amongst yeah. it all um so yeah i think it was i'd say maybe this conversation was a bit more positive or optimistic maybe than the last time we chatted i feel like there's maybe more going on um mm. like there's more awareness there's a little bit more knowledge although not quite it's um yeah interesting it's progressing yeah and i liked that um the amount of resources that would be really useful that she's mentioned as well particularly around um the children the children's resources and the family's yeah, resources um definitely. i think that'd be really interesting 
Yeah, yeah, because they're the biggest, the big impact of children with long COVID. I know it's terrible in adults um, who are out of work and everything, but you just think about that yeah. with a child who's out of education and the lasting impact that's going to have through their whole life. It's quite significant. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A fascinating area, and it's it's brilliant that she's so passionate about it, and that we've got this access to yeah. <laughs> to getting taught from her as well, and and sort of keeping abreast of what's happening. So. Yeah, we hope you've enjoyed it as much as we have. And if you've got any comments or feedback, feel free to share. Um, You can drop us lines. We always leave our contact details on the episode description, along with as many of the resources as we can. Till next time. I'm Primary Care Knowledge Beast. This podcast has been able to continue to date due to the support of GP Excellence, Wigan Borough CCG, Greater Manchester Training Hub and the GP Fellowship Programme, as well as Greater Manchester Health and Social Care Partnership. Just a friendly reminder that these podcasts are for healthcare professional education and shouldn't be used for medical advice by the general public. They were recorded in Greater Manchester in 2022. Guidelines can vary by location as well as over time, so always check for up-to-date local and national guidelines before you make any treatment decisions. The content is based on our interviewee's opinion and interpretation of current best practice. It's your responsibility to use your clinical judgment before applying or relying on information solely from this podcast. Check out the episode description for full details and any links that we've mentioned in the episode.